And I promise you'll have as much time as you like to continue those conversations after church. And I hope you'll do that around a, a cup of tea or coffee and something to eat. It's good to enjoy this time of fellowship together. It's not just, a, not just good, it's, it's really important. And we're in the middle of a series here on the book of Revelation. And we're up to chapter 3 today. We're looking at the fourth letter of, from Jesus Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And today we're looking at his letter written to the church in Sardis, which is in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. So please have your your Bibles open at Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. Now, for those who, who follow news and politics, you'll know that Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing perhaps a shock loss in tomorrow's national election. Justin, of course, is political royalty. He was the son of Pierre Trudeau, who was Canada's Prime Minister. Canada, that's, uh, I think it's Canada, isn't it? So if I say Canada, and if you're Canadian, please forgive me. Prime Minister of Canada from the 60s through to the, the 80s, and he was elected Prime Minister just three years ago with a huge majority, and the Canadian economy is booming with a apparently 7% growth, and Barack Obama himself has given Justin Trudeau a public endorsement. So he's got everything going for him, you would think, and yet he's facing a shock loss tomorrow. We'll see. The question is, why is Canada looking at chucking out someone who was, uh, until recently, a very popular Prime Minister. Why are they looking at chucking him out tomorrow? One word, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You see, Justin Trudeau presents as a very principled man, a very principled politician, but he's been found out using his political influence and authority to protect an engineering firm accused of bribing Libyan officials. And he presents himself as being ultra-politically correct, ultra-racially sensitive. But as you may know, three videos have emerged of him painting his face black and dressing up uh, as a black, black American in, at, at parties. And you might think that that's perfectly okay. The point is that he doesn't think it's okay. But he's done that. And so... There is this air of hypocrisy around him. People are disgusted by hypocrisy. A difference between what we say and what we do. A difference between how we present ourselves and what we are. People do not like hypocrisy. In fact, on the very same page that I read that in the Week in Australian yesterday, there was an article probing the genuineness of Scott Morrison's Christianity. I don't know if you read that article. And here's a quote from that article. There are public comments made by Morrison that refer to his faith, including his capacity for prayer. Although these can often be a reflex action from decades of church going. Just as a sportsman never loses the desire to catch a passing ball, a parishioner rarely forgets the language of their youth. And so this article was saying, Scott Morrison presents as a Christian, 
but is he the real deal? Now I can assure you of this. If some people think it's a crime for an Australian Prime Minister to be a Christian, it'll be counted a far worse crime if he's found out to be a hypocrite, a hypocritical Christian. Because hypocrisy, in whatever its shape, is always repulsive and Christian hypocrisy, or what we might call nominalism, saying you're a Christian but not living as a Christian, is especially repulsive. And we've all seen nominal Christianity. We've all seen it in fiction, haven't we? Who enjoys Pride and Prejudice as much as I do? And is not your favourite character Mr Collins? (laughs) Mr Collins, the rector, who is so pious and so serious, who gives such pious prayers and sermons, but who is in fact worldly and a sycophant, who cares more for sucking up to the rich than faithfully preaching Jesus Christ. And we've all experienced or seen Christian hypocrisy, nominal Christianity for ourselves. We've all seen those who participate faithfully in church ritual week after week, but who are mean and arrogant with their workers during the week, or mean and arrogant even with their own families. We've all experienced those who sing loud songs of praise on a Sunday, but whose lives from Monday to Saturday are just as worldly and pleasure-seeking as anyone around them. We can accept unchristian behaviour from someone who doesn't claim to be a Christian, but it's hard to stomach, isn't it? Unchristian behaviour from someone who says that they're a Christian. And we must ask how many millions have been inoculated against Christianity, inoculated against the gospel by an experience of Christian hypocrisy. How many young people have we lost from our own church? There might be any number of reasons for that, but has hypocrisy been one of them? Have we turned off our own young people by this mismatch between what we say and what we do? In this fourth letter, Jesus Christ exposes nominalism in the church. He exposes Christian hypocrisy. He puts the dagger into it. He exposes it and he teaches us what we must do about it. Please read with me Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished 
in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Jesus Christ, these are your living words spoken to us here and now. These are not words carved in stone long ago and relevant only for a certain people at a certain time. They are living words and you speak them now in this place to this people. And we pray that you will, in your grace and mercy, give us those listening ears. Help us not now to block our ears to your voice. May we hear your voice and obey what you say. For the sake of your name. Amen. To the angel of the church in Sardis, And Sardis was known for two things. It was a city that was apparently very rich in its day because it was on the the juncture of five highways, five trading routes, and it was built on a precipice. So it was a rich and secure city. It was, in fact, a complacent city, and it was sacked twice in its history by the Persians in the 6th century and by the Greeks in the 3rd century BC. And it was sacked because they were so safe and secure on their high city, on top of a cliff, that they didn't even bother to post a guard. Now the problem for the church of Sardis was not persecution, which was the problem for Ephesus, Smyrna and Pergamum, The problem for this church is that the city's spirit of rich complacency had infected the church. Here's a rich city, here's a secure city, and that wealth and prosperity had infected the church and had created a sense of of complacency in the church. And Jesus says, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The number seven in the book of Revelation symbolizes perfection and completeness. The seven spirits of God is the perfect spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus holds the Holy Spirit. He sends the Holy Spirit where he wills. And he has the seven stars in his hands. That is the the message of the church, the messengers of the church. You can see that at the end of chapter one. What Jesus is saying here is that the future of this church is entirely in my hands and Jesus would either make or break the church of Sardis. 
And he says, I know your deeds. You have a name, literally. You have a reputation. Now, I think that that, that every church has a, a kind of reputation, right? Every church has some kind of defining aspect to it. You might be the the ultra-ritualistic church, the small but faithful church, the loud but superficial church, the socially engaged church, the snobbish church, the liberal church, the student church, the old people's church, the Bible-centred church. What defined the church of Sardis? That's the, the vibrant church. That's the church that's alive. It had this reputation for life and vibrancy. Things were happening in the church of Sardis. And I imagine that there was lively involvement with the community. And I imagine that their public meetings were lively events. I don't imagine you could fall asleep too easily at a worship service of the church in Sardis. And there's nothing wrong, is there, with being a lively church? But Jesus says this, you have a reputation for being alive. You have a name for being alive. But actually, you're dead. You see, those eyes of blazing fire that Jesus Christ has, sees beneath the surface, looks beneath that that outward vibrancy, and he sees nothing. Death corpse. Dare I say that the church of Sardis was a zombie, moving around, making noise, making an impact, some kind of impact, but actually dead. Jesus says to this church, you're actually dead. Wake up, he says. Wake up, dead church. Watch out. That's how that could be translated. Take a good look at yourself. Red alert, church and Sardis. You think you're okay. You've got a great reputation. You're the vibrant church. You're dead. You're actually dead. Now, at this point, you really want to know, what was it that made this church dead? A reputation for vibrancy, but Jesus, why did you say that this church is in fact dead? What's the reason for that? Well, he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And here's the reason. For I have found your deeds unfinished, incomplete, imperfect, is another way that could be translated, in the sight of my God. This is why the church in Sardis was vibrant by reputation, but was in fact dead. It's because their works, their deeds were incomplete. Now notice that Jesus does not damn the nature of their deeds, and we can even presume 
Let's be generous here and let's presume that their deeds were in fact good deeds, that there were good things going on in Sardis. Jesus doesn't damn them for the quality of their works, the nature of their works. He damns them because their works were unfinished, unfulfilled, incomplete. Deeds, works that looked good in the sight of human beings, but in God's eyes were not good because they were unfinished. What Jesus sees, in other words, and I'll use this modern phrase, virtue signalling. The church was virtue signalling, looking like they were doing good things, good deeds happening, but it was just that, signalling their virtue. They were tokenists. They were like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias and Sapphira who came forward to the apostles and said, we've sold our property, here's the amount. And what were they wanting? They were wanting praise and applause, right? We've sold our property and here's the money, put it to good use in the church. But their works were incomplete, unfinished, false because they'd kept back half of it for themselves and lied about that. Peter said, you didn't have to give the whole amount, by the way. It's the fact you're claiming to give the whole amount is what damns you. I'm thinking about those ostentatious rich people. Remember, Jesus and the disciples were sitting in the temple and they're watching the people come forward, giving their gifts. And there were rich people And I picture them pouring bags of money and the money clinking into the the box and everyone gasping. My goodness, did you see how much that person put in? And Jesus said, I tell you, that that poor old widow who just put in a couple of copper coins put in all much more than they did because they were just giving a bit of their surplus. You see, it was a good thing they were doing, but it was incomplete unfinished, imperfect. It was tokenism. It was just a show. Or like the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. And the rich young ruler said, I've kept the commandments. I've honoured my parents. I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen, I've kept all of these commandments. And Jesus looked the man in the eye and said, there's one thing you lack. Take all you have, sell it, give it to the poor, then come and follow me. Because what Jesus saw was tokenism, hypocrisy. He claimed to be wholeheartedly serving God and yet Jesus looked into his heart and saw that there was something he was holding back, something big he was holding back. This man hadn't given his heart to the Lord. His heart was in his riches and he was holding them to himself. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. 
In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You see, hear what our Lord Jesus is saying. He doesn't want a part of our heart, a part of our life, a part of our riches, a part of our time, a part of our devotion. He wants it all, demands it all. It is his. And if we give a part, but live as though we've given the whole, then we might look good on the outside and have a reputation for life. But Jesus said, you're dead. You're dead. You haven't given it all. You haven't consecrated it all. You say I'm your Lord, but I'm not because you're retaining it. You're holding it all or a part of it. In short, the church of Sardis had vibrant worship and some good works. But their works were half-finished. And they were half-finished because they were half-hearted. And so Jesus says, you're dead. You're actually dead. Now, if we hate hypocrisy, the Lord hates it a hundred times more. Listen to what he says to the Israelites in the book of Amos. And if you're not blushing when you hear these words, then I'm not sure if you're hearing them. They make me blush. I hate, I despise your religious feasts, says the Lord. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Although you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Why? Because they had neglected justice. It was just tokenism. It was just words. It was just noise. And they had not given all to the Lord. And they were acting unjustly as a result. Now, we, 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 can all, we must agree with this. I mean, who doesn't hate hypocrisy? We all hate it. And we have to say, yes, Jesus. Yes. If that is what's going on, then you've put your finger on the problem. It is death. It's spiritual death. The big question brothers and sisters, is what does this say about us? That's the question, isn't it? Am I right in saying that that is now the question to ask, what does this, these words spoken to Sardis say to us here at Cornerstone in 2019? And I, I think we come to these seven letters in the book of Revelation and we make a big mistake Because if you're like me, your tendency is to read the seven letters and to think, oh, which one am I? Which church is Cornerstone? Are we we like the church in Smyrna? Are we like the church in Pergamum? Are we Philadelphia? Which one are we? And then we we try to pick which letters for us, and then we say, well, that's the one I'll I'll listen to. That's the one I'll act on, because that's the one for us. 
But that's a huge mistake because every letter applies to every church in some way. Every letter applies more or less to every church. And so we must ask, not, are we the church in Sardis or not, but how true is this of us? How true is this of us? Do we have a reputation for life and good works? But are our good works incomplete? We give, but not our all. We call Jesus Lord, but not in everything. We don't obey him in everything. Have we become nominal? After all, nominalism is a lot easier. It's a lot easier to say you're a Christian than to be one. Brothers and sisters, if the Sardis cap fits, then we must wear it. We must wear it. And we must also wear the warning. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead, says Jesus. Nominal Christianity is not defective Christianity. It's anti-Christianity. Christian faith is all or nothing. You're a Christian or you're not. And if our works are half done, if your works are half done, then you're not. Jesus says, you're dead. If it's us, we're in grave danger. If it's us, there's still grace. There's time for grace. Jesus tells us what to do. He tells us what to do. No, no, No one should at this point collapse in spiritual despair and say, well, that's me. Don't. Because Jesus has something to say to you. If you think it's you, he has something to say to you. He says, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. There's something there. Strengthen it. It's about to die, he says, strengthen it. What is there? Those embers. Blow those embers back into life and flame. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. Now, how do we do that? I want to do that. I I want those embers. I don't want to be a cold Christian. I don't want to be a nominal Christian. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be the real thing. So he says, strengthen what remains. How? How do I do that? How do I strengthen what remains? Jesus says, remember, first of all, remember what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. If you think that you're dead, go back, he says. Go back to what you have received and heard. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the message. Go back to the good news that God has sent his son to come 
and to rescue dead sinners and hypocrites and nominal Christians and virtue signalers. He's come to rescue us. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute more carefully. But, but, but listen to what he says here because he says, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will know, not know at what time I will come to you. I was wondering, Mandis, could you bring me those bookmarks there? I forgot to. <clears throat> now, Christine Doonan, who we all love, her daughter, Alison, has just come back from a visit to Turkey and she visited these places. Philadelphia, Laodicea, Sardis, Ephesus. And I knew she was going and I said, Alison, could you please send me some photos? I really want to see some photos because we're, 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 we're preaching through this right now. I want to see some photos from these places. Do you know what she came back with? Seven bookmarks, one for each church. Do you know why? Do you know what she said? There's nothing to take a photo of. There's nothing there. It's ruins. There's no photos. I can give you some bookmarks. There's no photos. Why? Because Jesus came like a thief. And he's patient, but his patience ran out and he came. And those churches are gone. Sardis is gone, long gone. Philadelphia, Laodicea, gone. They didn't listen. He said, I will come in judgment. And he did. Did you know that before union, I'm talking about the church union that became the Uniting Church. Are you aware of this? In 1977, the union of the Congregational, Presbyterian and Methodist churches joined together to become the Uniting Church in Australia. Did you know that there were well over 2,000 Presbyterian churches before that? Well over 2,000. Today, there are 600. That's telling me that there are about 1,500 churches, Presbyterian churches, that do not exist any longer. And you might say, oh, well, many of them went into the Uniting Church. Well, I can tell you that the Uniting Church is the, the fastest dying church in Australia, and those churches are probably not around. 1,500 Presbyterian churches are not here today. If we don't take these words of Christ seriously, we're fools. He does this. He does come. He visits like a thief, meaning he does not phone ahead. He just comes. And we've heard his word. We've heard the warnings. And then he comes. And if he sees a church that is just hard-hearted and locked ears and not listening, then he says, I'm not holding my name up to ridicule any longer. Yet, he says, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. You see, some in Sardis had not succumbed 
to nominalism, with hypocrisy. And Jesus says, look at them. You want to be like them. And there are so many wonderful, godly Christian men and women, older than me, the same age, younger than me, far godlier than me. And I thank God for them. And Jesus says, look at those ones who haven't soiled themselves with hypocrisy and nominalism. You want to be like them. The one who is victorious. He's given us the threat and now he gives us the promise. The one who is victorious. The one who says no to hypocrisy, no to nominalism. The one who wakes up, who, who goes back to what they have received will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. The white victory robe for those who are victorious over hypocrisy and nominalism. Eternal life for the victorious and only the victorious. And to the victorious, Jesus will say in heaven, this one is mine. Do you remember, you remember what Jesus said right near the end of the Sermon on the Mount? Remember those, those, those terrifying words that many on that, on that last day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do mighty miracles in your name? Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. But he says, if you will hear my voice and wake up and go back to what you have received, the gospel, the good news, and let that transform your life, then you will stand in heaven and I will point to you and I will say, mine, that one is mine. He is mine. She is mine. They didn't just say they were mine. They are mine. And they showed it. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is no... Don't take that, please, as the ritual sign-off from our Lord Jesus. And I fear that those who least needed to hear, if I dare say, least needed to hear what Jesus said today, are most touched by it and are most afraid of what he said. And I dare say that those who most needed to hear what Jesus has said here are the least inclined to listen. And so we need to pray for those listening ears. The Holy Spirit, he holds the Holy Spirit. Send your Holy Spirit, Lord, and soften and break our hearts that we will hear what you're saying. Let us not be like those dead churches, those 1,500 Presbyterian churches gone. Let us not be like that. Let us hear. Well, I finish by saying that hypocrisy 
says our Lord Jesus Christ can only be dealt with by remembering and holding and repenting. And we're going to come to the Lord's table in just a moment. We're going to do that. We're going to do exactly that. And so I'll invite our musicians now to come up. We're going to sing, sing together. We're going to sing, And Can It Be? This, this, is a wonderful, this hymn is a wonderful going back to the gospel, a wonderful going back to the news. So let's not just sing this with our mouths, but let's sing with our hearts as we prepare to come to the Lord's table together. And after this song, I'll invite the elders to join me, please, at the communion table.